0: Somewhere deep in space, an alien civilization exists on a strange planet. Their world is unique with a green sky and purple sun. One day while out exploring the galaxy, one of the alien life forms from this planet inadvertently gets too close to Earth, crashing into our planet in the process. Little does this alien know that it's being tracked by a government agency determined to find and destroy the creature. This may sound like a description of war the worlds or even the events of area 51 but it's not this is actually one of the most beloved sitcoms of not just the 80s but of all time i'm jamie Logie, and this is everything 80s a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress consume and connected and today we look back on a key part of 1980s pop culture and a remarkable merchandising powerhouse This is a story of Elf. Elf was one of my all time favorite shows. And I remember vividly watching the premiere episode as a kid with my family and laughing uncontrollably. I was about nine years old when ALF debuted, and the humor and premise seemed tailor made for me. And this was a show the entire family could watch. I was instantly hooked that first night. But unless you're Jim Henson, it's tough to introduce a puppet based TV show and expect it to create cultural significance. But ALF is one of those absolutely definitive parts of the 1980s. Let's dive into the essence of this beloved show its origins, legacy, and how this incredibly difficult show was all put together. ALF stands for Alien Life Form, and ALF himself has a real name, Gordon Shumway. He's from the planet of Melmac. One day, he's following a radio signal from Earth, but ends up crash landing on our planet and into the garage of the Tanner family. I always found it interesting how Full House and Alf shows that we're not that too far apart when they debuted use the same name for the family. Alf crashes into their garage. Not only are they startled, but once they realize he speaks English and isn't threatening, are unsure what to do with him. Meanwhile, the alien task force is aware of the extraterrestrial visit and seemingly tracks him down to the Tanner household. But the family decides to keep him hidden it's eventually discovered that Alf's home planet had exploded, so there's no returning home for him. The one sliver of hope Alf has is that a few of his friends, including his girlfriend Rhonda, managed to escape. Alf is short, covered with orange fur, has eight stomachs, four teeth, and his heart is located in his right ear. Some other details about Alf are that he was born on October 28, 1756, on the Lower East Side of Melmac. Melmac has a green sky, blue grass, and a purple sun. The name Melmac actually comes from a dinnerware brand from the 1940s. A big part of Alf's existence with the Tanner family is that they have to keep him hidden, and that sets up a lot of humor on the show. Alf follows a classic fish-out-a-water premise, with Alf trying to make sense of his new surroundings and culture, while trying to suppress his own bizarre customs, such as eating cats. The show also uses the classic trope of how will they coexist, which creates an endless amount of humorous possibilities. Alf is fun-loving and impulsive, which pits him up against Willie and his no-nonsense seriousness. The essence of Alf is that Alf is like the house guest who wasn't invited but never leaves, eating you out of house and home. He's not unlike the character of Cosmo Kramer from Seinfeld or Ed Norton on The Honeymooners in that way. Alf is basically Cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Historically, this has always been a pretty safe sitcom trope. Alf was performed by Paul Fusco, who we'll cover more in a moment. He provided the voice and puppeteering along with Lisa Buckley and Bob Fapiano. Longtime fans of Alf will know that Fapiano is the name of a Melmacchian holiday. Full shots of ALF were performed by 2-foot-9-inch Hungarian actor Mishu Mizaros in a full costume. Mishu was born in 1939 and was part of the Ringling Brothers Circus. He also appeared in Big Top Pee Wee, Look Who's Talking, and was in a Pepsi commercial with Michael Jackson. Willie Tanner, the father of the Tanners, was played by Max Wright. Kate Tanner, the mother, was played by Anne Shadeen. Lynn Tanner played by Andrea Elson, who was also on shows like Who's the Boss and Silver Spoons, and Brian Tanner, the youngest son, played by Benji Gregory. He was also on some other classic 80s shows such as Punky Brewster, The A-Team, and Pound Puppies. There are the classic nosy neighbors, the Aqumonics, played by John LaMotta and Jerry Seinfeld's mother, Liz Sheridan. Over the course of the series, Alf begins to interact with more humans, including neighbor Jake, Willie's brother Neil, played by Jim J. Bullock, and Kate's mother Dorothy, played by Ann Mira. This is the real-life mother of Ben Stiller and wife of Jerry Stiller, a.k.a. Frank Costanza. That gives us a few Seinfeld connections right out of the gate, and there's one more coming up later in the show. But this all starts with Alf's creator. Paul Fusco grew up with a love of magic, ventriloquism, and performing. In his early years, he worked on a kids' television show. He also had a love of puppeteering and eventually met fellow puppeteers Bob Fappiano and Lisa Buckley. The three teamed up and began to make some holiday specials for Showtime. I have a previous episode all about the origins of HBO, Showtime, and cable TV, if you want to go back and check out my earlier episodes. One of the first shows they came up with was called The Crown of Bog, a Halloween special from 1981. It featured puppets and real-life actors, and allowed the trio to showcase their abilities. Some other specials from the 80s include The Valentine's Day That Almost Wasn't, and Santa's Toy Bag. But Fusco, who even worked for Disney for a short time, had his sights set on something even bigger, primetime network TV. While the trio was creating these early projects, Fusco was planting the seeds for ALF. The character goes all the way back to 1984, and Fusco believed it was an ideal character to carry its own project. This wasn't a scary alien, but one that was like a regular joke. ALF, partly based off Rolf the dog from the Muppets, was gruff, kind of a slob, and not the advanced species we so often associate with extraterrestrials. This unique approach lent itself to so many comedic possibilities. Speaking of the alien aspect, Steven Spielberg reportedly wanted to get a look at the puppet to make sure it didn't look too much like E.T. One day, Fusco approached producer Bernie Brillstein. Fusco was clearly a talented puppeteer and creative force and wanted to show off his ability and talk about the possibility of doing a show. Brillstein, however was pretty tough to impress as he was a former manager of a somewhat competent puppeteer named Jim Henson. Brilstein was originally not totally interested in Alf. After all, he had already seen and worked with the greatest puppeteer of all time in Henson. But Fusco ended up winning him over with his performance and comedic ability. And there was another appealing aspect to Alf. The character could make for a great intellectual property with a ton of merchandising potential. We'll revisit this coming up a bit later. It's pretty significant. But before any of that, they needed to launch ALF to the world. And the best way to do that was through network television. Busco and Tom Patchett created the concept of an ALF TV series and began to shop it around. But it was a unique sell. The show was a sitcom based around a puppet. But it wasn't a familiar Muppet. It was a brand new character. But since the goal was prime time, who would the audience be? If it was intended for kids, was this the ideal time slot? Would adults watch a show with a puppet that wasn't Kermit, Miss Piggy, or Fozzie? And if it was for adults, how adult would it be? Would the adult direction, excuse the extraterrestrial humor, alienate kids? How could a puppet be the lead of a primetime show? Would anyone even watch? How exactly do you pitch something like this? Eventually, though, NBC got on board because things weren't exactly rosy over at the Peacock Network. We all associate NBC with being the cornerstone of network television and home to some of the most popular sitcoms of all time, but this really wasn't the case in the early to mid-80s. So many other projects had failed that network president Brandon Tartikoff was willing to take a risk. A network show where the main character is made of felt and fur? Let's give it a shot. The pitch to Tardikoff and the NBC executives even featured the character of Alf explaining what his show was all about. They shot a pilot, but Tardikoff was reportedly going to pass on it. In a 2016 interview with Mental Floss, associate producer, Steve Lamar, says how it was Tardikoff's four-year-old daughter that loved Alf and made him give the show a shot. But what were the logistics behind creating the show? How was ALF actually operated to perform in a sitcom? If you've ever seen behind the scenes pictures or video of the Muppets, which is always a bit unnerving, you know how complicated the filming process is. The performers are below the set and the real life actors can only move in certain directions. But ALF was even more complicated than this and it's what led to many production delays. The entire set of ALF was built on a four-foot platform off the ground, so Fusco could perform ALF underneath. This two-tiered set is similar to how they would do things on The Muppet Show. But on The Muppet Show, segments were usually in a smaller and more narrow area. ALF used an entire house. Because the character of ALF needed to interact throughout the home, the set was filled with trap doors, so ALF could basically appear anywhere on the set. This made it incredibly hard for the cast to navigate the floor. Anne Shadeen, who played Kate, reportedly fell into one once when walking out of the kitchen. Fusco was the main operator of Alf and used his left hand to control Alf's mouth and his right hand controlled Alf's right hand. Lisa Buckley, the second puppeteer, controls Alf's left hand and helps to manage things beneath the stage. The third puppeteer, Bob Fappiano, controlled Alf's facial and ear movements with the remote control used off stage. During the actual taping of the show, Fusco, who don't forget is also the voice of Alf, wore a head-mounted microphone to record Alf's voice. Add this all up, and you've got a ton of technical problems that can occur, and scenes would require multiple takes. There were so many things that needed to be in place to capture a scene that it presented more possibilities for delays. A single scene of ALF needed to be a perfectly coordinated dance that had so many moving parts that it made it impossible to record ALF in front of a live audience, something they even tried to do in the early first season. Production was long, and the average episode could take over 20 hours to shoot. This would become more of an issue in the coming years. Alf was also not to be mentioned as a puppet, but actually referred to as Alf. At his core, Paul Fusco was a performance artist and magician, and he wanted to keep the illusion. A magician never gives away their secrets, and he wanted to create an air of mystery for kids. Even the credits of the show listed personal assistance to Alf. Fusco also wasn't a big fan of rehearsing and liked more spontaneity in the performance. There was even some improvising, which is pretty remarkable considering all the technical aspects that went into the production. ALF debuted on September 22nd, 1986 on NBC, and as I mentioned earlier, I was watching that very first night. Though they had an older demographic in mind, ALF was immediately a huge hit with kids. Once they realized how many kids were watching, the show was toned down a bit. But whatever, as long as people were watching. <laughs> They're the first humans who have ever heard the dreaded Melmachian hiccups. <laughs> what is it that makes them so dreaded, besides that irritating metallic echo? At first, ALF wasn't exactly a ratings juggernaut, but usually won its time slot. In its first season, ALF just cracked the top 30 shows. It averaged a rating of around 16.5. This would make it far and away the most watched show today. The average viewership of an episode of ALF back then is about the same as the Game of Thrones Season 7 finale. But in 1986, a 16.5 rating was definitely okay. But this wasn't even half the amount of people tuning in to watch juggernaut shows like The Cosby Show and Family Ties. But in season two, the show hit new peaks. ALF shot up the charts, landing in the top 10. Closer to 20 million viewers were now tuning in. ALF was now surpassing the ratings of shows like Moonlighting, LA Law, Matlock, and even Monday Night Football. Not bad for a show that was predicted to not last more than four episodes. With this remarkable success, Busco and the show's creators now had free reign to do whatever they wanted without network interference. Elf was about to hit heights that no one could have ever imagined. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? Because of the free reign, in season 2, you may remember a bit of a bizarre episode that seemed like a departure from the regular series, and this was the ALF Christmas special. Airing in season 2 on December 14th, 1987, this felt like ALF's version of a very special episode. In this two-part show, the Tanners decide to spend Christmas in a cabin in the woods, Alf accidentally gets stuck in the truck of a man who delivers toys to kids in the hospital during Christmas. Alf makes it to the hospital where he meets a young sick girl who probably isn't going to make it to another Christmas. And there are a few more very intense plot lines. All in all, this was a more serious departure from the regular slapsticky sitcomness of a regular Alf episode. Not only did it feel different, it looked different. It wasn't on a set, but in a real-world location. And instead of the usual three-camera sitcom production, the Christmas special opted for a single-camera presentation shot on film instead of video. So why the shift to a much more serious subject matter? Well, this is because of the real-life impact that Elf was having on a new generation of kids. A Yahoo! Entertainment article from 2017 reveals that this episode came out of a real-life story. Because of the success of ALF, many young kids were writing in to the character, thinking he was real. Something similar also happened during the success of Punky Brewster. Kids resonated so strongly with the character of Punky that they would write in specifically to Punky and not actress Soleil Moonfry who played her. In their mind, Punky was someone real that seemed like their friend, and they would share incredibly important things with her. The same thing was happening with Alf. Paul Fusco revealed how doctors often contacted him because sick kids wanted to meet Alf. At the height of its popularity, the show was getting 40,000 pieces of fan mail a week. A staff was hired just to deal with the fan mail. One letter Alf and the show received was from a girl named Tiffany Lee Smith who wanted to actually meet Alf. The show and Fusco set up a video conference where she got to see her favorite TV character. The premise of the Christmas episode was based around this real-life nine-year-old with the character in the episode being named after her. Alf kept going strong in season three. The show, which had every episode named after a song, never reached the heights of season two, but still managed to rank 15th with a 17.5 rating. This rating tied it with Monday Night Football, and ALF still finished ahead of shows like The Wonder Years, Unsolved Mysteries, and Night Court. But with shows like Roseanne, The Cosby Show, and Cheers dominating viewership, the goal was just to stay competitive. One of the unique episodes of Season 3 was a two-part episode called Tonight Tonight. In this dreamlike episode, we see Alf hosting the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It's the only time the Tanner family is not seen, and Alf hosts the legendary talk show alongside real-life Johnny Carson's sidekick, Ed McMahon. The show also brought in some new and very talented writers, including Al Jean and Mike Reese. Both would go on to become two of the very first writers for The Simpsons. Speaking of The Simpsons, you may remember the episode of ALF where Brian's principal shows up after Brian fails a science project. The principal was played by the great Marshall Wallace, who was the voice of Edna Krabappel on The Simpsons. But even though it trailed some of these big shows in the ratings, ALF had something the big guns couldn't compete with. Something that made the show a true powerhouse and a pop culture phenomenon. Some of the most incredible merchandising the 1980s had ever seen. It didn't take long for ALF to pivot from sitcom character to full-on brand. Over the years, ALF has been incorporated into an endless amount of media and consumer products. I don't know about your school, but in 1986, Alf shirts and sweaters were the hot items in mine. After the show debuted, it didn't take long for ALF merchandise to roll out. Dolls, bedsheets, sticker books, backpacks. This was looking like the next big thing. It's an alien. No kidding, where? It's living in America. I like what they've done with the place. It loves cats. Can't get enough of them. It's Alf, and now it's everywhere. Alf was a legitimate pop culture phenomenon, which you probably remember if you grew up during this time. The merchandise racked up hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. This helped separate Alf from the other primetime shows as the character was now everywhere. Ted Danson may have been a huge star on Cheers, but you didn't see Sam Malone toothpaste in Walmart. Not in my Walmart, anyway. This is similar to the Knight Rider effect, where the story of Kit and Michael Knight may not have been as high in the ratings as some of the top shows, but it made more money as they were able to release an extensive line of toys and products. And I have a previous episode all about Knight Rider if you want to go back and check that out after. And there was no stopping ALF. Sleeping bags, tents, cake pans, watches, alarm clocks, any consumer good you can pretty much think of had an ALF version. It's new storytelling ALF. Say on Melmac, no tabby burger. He sings, he moves, he tells stories, and even knock knock jokes with lots of uproarious cassettes to choose from. I'll tell you, kiddo, I'm just having too much fun. Storytelling ALF. Extra cassettes sold separately. Batteries not included. New from Coleco. A 1987 article in the LA Times states 46 companies licensed a remarkable 250 ALF products. And sales in 1987 alone topped $250 million. According to an article from the New York Times in December 1987, this is $135 million more than what Lego annually sold. This is pretty amazing considering more than half of all households with kids under 15 at the time were thought to own Lego. And when you adjust that 250 million for inflation, it's nearly 700 million. You may remember those popular plush Alf dolls. The dolls alone sold $85 million in one year or 225 million when converted for today. If you really loved ALF, you may remember paying $6 to join the ALF fan club. There was a huge promotion with Burger King. Whoa. Burger King has been invaded by ALF puppets. Please help. Hey, I'm hungry. Yo, what a Whopper? No problem. Just $2.99 a flame-broiled Whopper or large sandwich gets you your own ALF. Four different furry aliens. Each comes with his own record. Sales of the ALF poster outsold posters of Bon Jovi. Marvel even introduced an ALF comic book. There was also music. Depending on what country you're listening from, you may remember the single ALF Stuck on Earth, released in 1987. This actually hit number three in New Zealand. In the 80s, ALF was a sales juggernaut in every sense of the word. There weren't even many classic Saturday morning cartoons that had this level of marketing exposure and success. Despite this, there were a few huge marketing opportunities that Fusco turned down. In a 2007 interview, Fusco says Alf was offered the role of spokesperson for Budweiser as they were retiring Spuds McKenzie. He also turned down Coca-Cola. And one thing that hurts me in my soul, turned down a breakfast cereal that would have been called Alfio's. Going into the fourth season, ratings would drop quite substantially. As I mentioned before, ALF was an incredibly difficult show to shoot from a technical perspective. It took so many takes and coordination that it became very tedious for the cast to shoot. The actors of Night Court didn't have to worry about falling into a multitude of trenches scattered around the set. Eventually, this seemed to lead to tension on set. The shooting conditions were hot and difficult, and all the best lines were going to a puppet. There's the famous story of the night Max Wright allegedly attacked Alf on set and had to be pulled off him. Even if that's not true, that's my favorite story ever. There's also the story that after the last scene was filmed on the series, Max Wright walked off set to his dressing room, got his bags, and left without saying goodbye to anyone. To me, Max Wright really was the cornerstone of the show. Wright, a classically trained theater actor who the network actually wanted to replace after the pilot, set the tone and really helped carry the show. Willie was the perfect foil for Alf, which created a classic Laurel and Hardy dynamic. Wright's interactions with Alf were so believable that it was easy to forget that Alf was just a puppet. Max Wright created actual chemistry with a giant piece of foam. It seemed that by season four, the grueling shooting schedule had just caught up with everyone. Not to mention that all the extra time spent creating the show made it more expensive to produce than the average sitcom. But there were also creative limitations. After nearly 80 episodes, it was hard to create storylines for a character that was limited to a single location and a handful of other characters. The writers tried to introduce other characters who could interact with ALF, but those limitations prevented the expansion of the ALF world. To try to salvage the ratings, NBC moved ALF to Saturday nights, but the show dropped to number 39 in the ratings. And this all leads up to that last episode. The final episode of ALF still sticks with me to this day. If you were a fan, you no doubt remember this crushing finale. But it was a finale never intended to be a final episode. In this last show aired on March 24th, 1990, ALF is contacted by friends from Melmac and they arrange to come pick him up. ALF wrestles with whether to stay or go, but decides to restart a life that he once lost. The alien task force, however, intercepts the transmission and finds out about the pickup point. One of the government agents is played by Richard Fancy, who you may remember as Mr. Lipman from Seinfeld. But just when Alf is about to be picked up by the spaceship, the task force busts in to capture Alf, leaving him defenseless, the tanners helpless, and the spaceship taking off. For a young me, This was soul-crushing. And worst of all, there was no resolution. There was no follow-up, no fifth season, nothing. Nothing was tied up. Many questions weren't answered, and it created a deflating finale for legions of fans who were so loyal to the show. But there was an intention behind this ending, as the cliffhanger would encourage the network to order a fifth season. Or at least give the creators an hour special or movie of the week to properly wrap up the series. If you're a fan of ALF, you know none of this ever happened, at the time. ALF was officially over. NBC was moving in new directions, and there were some legal changes happening in the world of television. Up to this point, shows like ALF were independently owned by the creators and not the network's. Going into the 90s, the laws changed and the networks could now own their own shows, so this was another reason why the show was not renewed. And NBC now had their own show they had high hopes for. ALF would be replaced on Monday nights at 8 o'clock by a show that seemed to follow that same ALF premise where an unexpected house guest disrupts the life of their newly adopted family and their world gets flipped, turned upside down. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air debuted just six months after ALF went off the air. As I mentioned earlier in the show, in the world of television, just bring an unwelcome houseguest into the picture as this device has worked for decades. Even though it only lasted four seasons, the ALF franchise was fully established in 1980s pop culture lore. It was almost like the original series was a launching platform to push the brand of ALF into an endless amount of directions. One of those directions was with an animated series, and it took place while the sitcom was still on the air. Realizing that younger viewers were part of the core audience, an animated spinoff was a no-brainer. ALF, the animated series, ran from 1987 to 1988 on NBC. The Saturday morning cartoon set on ALF's home planet of Melmac was a prequel series that took place before Melmac blew up. It follows the life of ALF, who of course is never referred to as ALF, as that name doesn't exist, until he reaches Earth. We meet his friends and his girlfriend Rhonda as well. The show was bookended with live action segments featuring ALF talking to the viewers. Alf set up the show and then discussed it afterward. Alf, the animated series, lasted for two seasons of 29 episodes, and it led to another spin off called Alf Tales. Debuting in September 1988, Alf Tales featured Alf and a bunch of the other characters from season one of the cartoon and put them in place of classic fairy tale characters. This Saturday morning cartoon also lasted for two seasons. Ending in December 1989. But Alf didn't exactly fade away after the primetime show and cartoons ended. Alf continued to appear on shows like Hollywood Squares. In the 2016 Mental Floss article, Fusco says he, or Alf actually, was offered the chance to host Saturday Night Live. But he turned it down as the TV audience wouldn't see him, but the studio audience would have seen him performing Alf. He was always about creating the illusion. Jim Henson was also a fan of ALF and wanted Fusco to perform ALF on the John Denver Christmas special alongside Kermit and Miss Piggy. Fusco turned this down as he didn't want, quote, ALF to be perceived as a Muppet, unquote. This one would have been a collaboration crossover that not even Marvel could touch if you've been a fan of alf since 1986 you know he's never really gone away in 1996 we got project alf this was a made-for-tv movie and sequel that aired on abc not nbc and it was supposed to wrap up the loose ends of the original show project alf would also serve as a backdoor pilot for a potential new series But it didn't feature any of the original cast and wasn't canon for many people. Yes, ALF canon is a real thing. ALF continues to pop up in commercials and the odd TV show to this day. In 2004, there was ALF's hit talk show. Airing on TV land, ALF's hit talk show lasted for seven episodes, where ALF, reunited with Ed McMahon, interviewed celebrities. Will we see ALF again? Talks of an ALF reboot or a movie or series have been in discussion for years, so we'll just have to see what comes of this. ALF is so intertwined with the 1980s that any reference to the decade and imagery representing this time period seems incomplete without the character. Whenever you see collages or best of the 80s imagery, there's no doubt you will probably see ALF. If you haven't noticed by now, ALF is one of my all-time favorite shows. I think I was just at the right age for it when it first debuted in 1986. The humor and tone of the show really connected with me, and it was one of those shows that I felt tapped into my sensibilities and sense of humor. There are certain defining images from the 80s that act as a snapshot of the time period. Walkmans, acid-wash jeans, leg warmers... Max Headroom, and Marty McFly are just some of the standouts that represent the decade. And right alongside this select imagery stands Alf, an absolutely definitive part of the entire 1980s. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this episode, you know there's plenty more where that came from. I gave you some suggestions for further listening, but if you want to go back into my earlier episodes, there are a ton of great topics to keep you covered. If you really like this show, do me a solid and leave it a five-star rating and review. That helps more people get exposed to all these beloved things from the 80s that we love so much. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now so you get updated as soon as I put out a new episode. And if you're in a position to support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's a platform to get access to bonus audio content, including things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast, where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. If you want to learn more, you can just head over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80S or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. Thank you so much again for listening and for spending your time with me here today. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.